You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 16 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today we're covering the ninth novel by Richard Matheson, which is part eight in our series on on his uh, career as a writer of novels that were turned into movies. That's a weird career. And... uh, (laughs) The, the book for this week is Bid Time Return, which was later adapted into the movie Somewhere in Time. It also appears in many places as Somewhere in Time. Yes, ever since the movie, it's been called Somewhere in Time. Yeah. Go figure. Uh, but before we get started with that, a couple weeks ago we mentioned the fact that uh, this show is a finalist for the Parsec Awards, which is very exciting. Um, the ceremony is going to be held at Dragon Con in Atlanta over Labor Day weekend, and uh, Max and I are going to be there, because why not, right? So, um, if if you happen to be going to Dragon Con, and uh, you want to meet us or something, we would love to meet you, so uh, hit us up on Twitter, at ComTrackStars, or, or something like that, and we will definitely... Uh, get in, get in touch. We'll we'll only be there on Sunday, maybe very late Saturday night. But uh, yeah, we we will be there on Sunday primarily. Okay, on with the show. Bid time return. This was Matheson's ninth novel. It was written in 1975, which would be four years after Hell House, mm-hmm. and it is the story of a young man, you know, in his what 29 somewhere in that area. I thought he was 36. 36, okay, who is dying. He has a, he has a brain tumor mm. and only a few months left to live. And uh, he goes to uh, an old hotel and uh, sees a picture of an actress from 75 years prior. And he falls in love with her and decides to figure out a way to go back in time to uh, um, meet her. Because he feels that that's his destiny. Yes. He does some preliminary research Mm -hmm. and sort of confirms his really, like, tentative suspicion that uh, that confirms that he does go back in time. Right. So then he goes, oh, well, like, I guess I'm going to go back in time. So this was based on Matheson's experience seeing a photo of the actress Maud Adams in an old hotel. Apparently he saw it and instantly fell in love with her and started reading about her life and then decided to turn this into a book. And from what I understand, it's kind of semi-autobiographical in the way that he took a tape recorder and, and uh, you know, Put himself, locked himself away in a room at the Hotel Coronado or whatever it's called, which is the hotel where, where this story takes place. Yeah. And he basically did what this guy was doing, his main character was doing, and obsess over her. Right. He did intentionally create the, the situation that would inform the writing. He, he forced himself into that mindset, the mm-hmm. way that uh, you know an actor would sort of put themselves into the character before shooting a movie or something he did that with the book mm-hmm. which is not 
not all that odd. I mean, people do it all the time. It's just that when the subject of your book is an obsession with um, a woman who is dead uh, because you saw a picture of her and thought that she was hot, it's a little stalkery. Yeah. But, you know, it's not really any weirder than any other form of method preparation. Yeah, well, but I, I guess that's true. You know, the whole time I kept on thinking, because he said in interviews and stuff like, you know, I saw a picture of her and I fell in love with her. And I'm thinking, like, isn't he married? I wonder what his wife had to say about this whole ordeal. But whatever. Um, well, it's not like he fell in love with a, like an, a person who's alive. It's kind of weird, though. It's it's weird, but it's not like it's not like she'd be jealous. Like, I don't know. Oh, would you love me as much if I were dead and on a in a painting on the wall? I don't know. I Maybe could, I should kill myself and be a painting on the wall. I could see that conversation coming up, but you know, whatever. Um, yes. So well, <laughs> well, what did you think about uh, bedtime return? Uh, I've mentioned on all of these previous episodes that I love Richard Matheson's writing style. And um, this is one of the very few instances where I find the style that he uses irritating and uh, 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 a a little bit obfuscating to the actual intent of the story. The the narrator, the first-person narrator in the story is not very dynamic. Well, for one thing, it's all in, well, most of it anyway is in uh, present tense. Yeah. Instead of, you know, saying like I walked over here and said, "Hey man," he's like, "I'm walking over here. I'm saying, "Hey man." Yeah. That's weird. It's frustrating. And when it first started up like that, I was like, "Oh, okay, so this is how he's getting into the story. This is how it's being introduced. So this is an interesting choice. I guess it can work." And then as it continued, I'm like, "Oh, so we're doing this for the whole book now?" Yeah. And I guess they don't quite do that, but they almost do that. So, they, him, him, he, he almost does that. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it's one of the rare instances where I find his style uh, it doesn't work in this context. I think that in a lot of ways, Matheson had sort of a, a Soderberghian approach in that he would, you know, create a style that was appropriate for the work, and it's certainly appropriate for the work. But there is something about this particular obsessiveness and this 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 uh, focus on a particular time period and an individual and all the details surrounding that person's life. Uh, it might in fact be possible, I mean, if it is in fact possible to travel through time by focusing yourself so obsessively on all the details of that moment in history, well, then maybe it's not worth it because of how boring that is. Well, let's talk about the uh, method of time travel which is used in this in this story. Did you buy it? Sure. Yeah? Uh, time travel is fundamentally such a bizarre concept. Uh, anytime somebody talks about time travel in science fiction... There's always people always try to do like an explanation for how the time travel works, and anytime you go into some detail about how the time travel in your story works, you have to solve like the weirdest problem ever, which is how do you explain something that is theoretically possible on paper given like general relativity, and then make it possible to do by a person. And if you have like, you know, a galactic civilization and your story is set in like the year 5000 and you've got, you know, like humongous like gap in terms of like technological advancement, you can just say, "Oh yeah, they made a giant time machine. It's uh, the size of a small galaxy." 
Um, it took them several generations to complete it, but it allows them to travel to any point in history. That's fine. Accept that. But if you're dealing with like that bizarre level of intuitive leap where an individual in present day world is able to travel through time, that requires a, a such a bizarre alteration of what we expect that you have to use something that is in some way very mysterious. And consciousness is such a, such a weird thing in general that utilizing something as mysterious as consciousness to affect time travel is in many ways much more reasonable than making a time machine out of a car. Maybe. Maybe it's just the way that I've been trained by the movies that I've grown up with or whatever. But, I mean, to me, uh, you know, it's not even that. It's not even, like, the idea that, like, you can will yourself to go back in time. And just so that, that everyone is sort of aware of what we're talking about here, the way that he sends himself back in time, he reads a book or something, talks to a professor, something like that, and he's like, okay, as long as I lock myself away in a room and dress in in period specific garb and well. don't don't really <laughs> don't really let myself, you know, uh see or be aware of anything from the present, then I can essentially hypnotize myself by repeating again and again and again the year is 1896, the year is 1896, and eventually if I do that long and hard enough I will make it back to 1896. And he does. Or 19... 1912 12? in the movie. But yeah, 1896 in the book. Now, okay. I guess I'm willing to accept that... It's very similar to the technique of time travel used in The Butterfly Effect. Okay. It's very similar to the technique used in another book from that era that I don't remember the name of. Well, there's one that they talked about called Time and Again which was written five years prior to this, which a lot of people, which is almost like exactly the same. A lot of people, uh, Finney. Yes. That's the book I'm thinking of. And and a lot of people, a lot of people have accused Matheson of ripping him off. But, um, to me, I don't know. I guess what what I have, uh, I have a problem with the time, with that time travel because it doesn't make any sense to me. But I, I think I might have a bigger problem with, the idea of someone reading this in a book and saying like, yeah, this makes, I'm going to work at this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to tra- travel through time by hypnotizing myself. Your concern is that this book is a bad influence on people because they might. I'm concerned that. Become uh, obsessive. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's not, it's not concern. What, what I'm, what I'm uh, disturbed by from a storytelling point of view is that there is a character who would be like, yeah, this is reasonable to me. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm gonna do that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going to hypnotize myself. This seems like a reasonable method. I mean, that to me is almost like someone saying, like watching Back to the Future and saying, like, yeah, I'm gonna build a time machine out of a DeLorean. You know. Uh-huh. I mean, even if that were the case, like it, it's so. I imagine it would be so hard to do that, you know. So hard to do what? Hypnotize yourself to go back in time, as they say. Hold on a second here. Okay. Are you implying that there's a level of difficulty in hypnotizing oneself in in order to send themselves back in time? (laughs) Because I think that that's actually super easy. Okay, because what I'm saying is... You can do that over tea. Okay. What I'm saying is, like, I don't buy a character 
reading this this theory on time travel and then s- believing in it enough to actually try it. Well, it it helps. And I know that because I read it and I didn't believe it enough to actually try it. <laughs> well, it helps that he was desperate. I guess that so. He was uh, he was desperate for a mechanism that would allow him to travel back in time to meet this woman. Maybe. And that and and then you get into the, the the question of whether or not he actually did anything, which is brought up in the book, which I appreciate in the book. Yeah. It's not brought up in the movie. Well, um, it's kind it's, of a bizarre thing to talk be. about. I mean, you know, what what they do is they they kind of uh, throw enough elements in there to to make you question whether or not it actually did happen. They or have you know the the idea of. Um, well, he has a he has a brain tumor. Yes, you know, and and at the end of the book, there's there's a note, you know, from from a doctor explaining how all of the things which seem to be evidence that he has done this could be explained through other, uh, through through other manners. That wasn't what I was saying. Okay, right. I'm saying that like because he does travel back in time. Period. It already occurred. Mm-hmm. So then the question isn't, how does he affect that travel back in time? Because, really, he's just on a path that will inevitably lead to him going back in time. So, honestly, it doesn't really matter what he decides to do. Because whatever he does, he will end up back in time. If, if, the, if the professor said, the way to go back in time is you eat a crazy amount of ice cream. Like, you just get, like, a really bad brain freeze. Mm-hmm. And then when you have that really bad brain freeze, you have somebody smack you in the face and say, it's 1896! You'll end up back in 1896. I guess that's it, yeah, if you believe that you are going back. No, you there. don't need to believe it. It's going to happen. Okay, but... It, it already if has it, occurred if it, if in it the is, past. If it is going to happen, yeah. But, um, but we don't even know for sure that it did. Sure, but we don't know for sure that it didn't, yeah. and there's no real reason to say that it either did, definitely did or definitely didn't happen, so it's kind of a quantum superposition. It's, it's Schrodinger's Superman. Okay. He may or may not have gone back in time, and because we can't open that box and see the facts, mm-hmm. we just have to assume that he kind of did both. All right. So... Getting away from the the specifics of this story, you know what what did you what did you think about the book on the whole? Were were you uh, pleased by it? There are plenty of things I like, like in the book, mm-hmm. but I, I I don't really like the book. Okay, I, I don't really like the book either. I mean, part of it is that I, I have trouble buying the the premise, which is always a problem uh, for liking a book. The um, DeLorean, that's fine. I'm totally okay with that because it's done in like a comedic context. It gives you enough information to uh, have it make sense. You know, once once you know someone breaks it down 25 years later, you know maybe it, it falls apart a little bit. But the, here's the other thing: there's enough other stuff in there to make me forgive. Just like if he had gone back in time in this story, and uh, there would be some. You know, really interesting stuff going on back in 1896 i'd be like okay cool you know who cares if he hypnotized himself back there let's let's just see where this goes because it really is just he goes back in time and he has a, a romance mm-hmm. with dr quinn and uh, her manager doesn't like it doesn't like him at all and then and and like there's some you know momentary periods of like aggression Mm-hmm. And, and and fighting. And then he sees her and falls in love with her. They yeah. have, like, lots and lots of sex over the span of, like, 
a day. Well, like a like a like a night. And then he finds a penny from spoilers. <laughs> he finds a penny from 1971, which you know sends him back to the present because it. Uh, it's from the future. It's from the future, and it and it, it just collapses his his ability to. Yeah, it collapses the waveform. Yeah, just like Schrodinger's cat. So, so that's. That's the story, and that to me is not a very interesting story. It, it was amazing how m- little happened in this book, considering how long it was. Well, it really is a. It, I mean, if the story started in 1996 with like a mysterious guy arriving at the hotel, mm-hmm. that wouldn't really be a fundamentally different book. But it would be a hell of a lot more interesting. No, it would not be more interesting. I think it would, because there'd be a mystery. I mean, I suppose here there's a mystery, but I don't know. I don't see the difference. I don't know. I'm not saying it would be a good book, but it would be interesting. It would be interesting to see that book. I'd be curious about it. So, uh, five years later, in 1980, Richard Matheson adapted the book into a feature film called Somewhere in Time. Mm -hmm. It was directed by uh, Jeannot Zwark. Who has worked? That might not be how you pronounce his name. We, yeah, both of those, <laughs> both the first and the last name, could be wrong there. Zenit Swartz. <laughs> but he he is a uh, a director of a lot of television. In fact, he's directed episodes of uh, Night Gallery and the '80s Twilight Zone, both of which were worked on by Matheson. But he didn't direct any Matheson stuff. He also directed Jaws two, and then Matheson wrote Jaws three D. So go figure. I mean, they kept on, you know, crossing paths just missing each other and and stuff yeah well uh, yeah he's got a very strange superman connection he directs this movie which is the first starring vehicle for christopher reeve after having been in superman and then later in a few years later he directed supergirl smart move and then a few years after that about a decade after that he was a director on smallville so go figure. Also, what if you don't want to go figure? Interesting. Don't go figure. Okay, in, in, an interesting little note that uh, I just thought of now. Um, even though he's French and probably doesn't know what baseball is, he seems to be a White Sox fan because in both Somewhere in Time and Supergirl, there are White Sox references. So you go, Geno Swark. The movie is fairly similar to the book. I, I guess the big changes are that. Uh, the the main character is not dying of of a brain tumor anymore. He's just uh, a guy. He's and, just just a normal, fancy you know rich screenwriter. Mm-hmm. And he's a playwright in the movie. Yeah, um, screenwriter in the book, but or telewriter in the book, whatever. And uh, yeah, it's it's um a bit more simplified, and the element of uh, you know questionability as far as uh, whether or not this actually happened is removed i think just kind of as a, a a product of the the format more than anything well the most significant change is that the there's a loop uh, the, yeah. the 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 woman the whatever dr quinn when she's an old woman she finds the guy at a party and hands him a watch Mm-hmm. And 
then later on in the story, once he's gone back in time and met her, you know, when she was young, uh, like the watch goes from him to her. Yeah. And presumably the, the, the series of events is that she got the watch from him. And then one day later she gave the watch to him, which is a very strange concept. It's like the glasses in uh, Star Trek Two. No, it's not like the glasses in Star Trek Two. Kind of, because no, but like if if that's the same watch, if the watch literally isn't, it was never replaced. Then then that watch is either a paradox or indestructible mm-hmm. and completely immutable. No matter what you do to it over the course of seventy years or so, it will not decay even the tiniest bit that's gone yeah in, in the in the book it's it's just kind of a case of she gives him a watch and then he takes that watch into the future and then it's there in the future and right. people are like where this watch come from um right you could theoretically say that he bought the watch right and and the the watch doesn't have like that built-in sort of causality thing you could also say that you know this woman you know, like over the course of this this interval, just like one day, she, she she her house was burned down in a forest fire that caught like you know it's it's L.A. Lots of stuff burns down there, and then she replaced the watch and she gave that replacement to him, and it turns out that that's actually the watch that he received. Yeah, I mean, that's it, fine. Th- there are some other uh, things, I guess, kind of like that in in the book, uh, most notably the the ledger. Which he finds in the mm-hmm. the records at the hotel, he finds uh, the the ledger which has his uh, signature in it, and then he goes back in time and signs that book. That's not a that's not a paradox. That no. just that just means he saw evidence that he would go back in time. Okay, like the yeah. watch actually, if it's the same watch, right? Because he's bringing it back in time instead of it just yeah. Right, if it's okay. a solid state thing, then that watch didn't have an origin. It literally just appeared yeah. in the universe as though it had no creation. Right. And it doesn't ever get destroyed. It's just a thing that exists in a particular point in time and n- not outside of that point. Yeah. So um, did you like the movie then? No. Which, which do you think is better, the book or the movie? Um, tough call. Probably the movie. Are your your problems with the movie the same as your problems with the book? No, my problems with the book are largely um, the the way the, the the story is approached, and my problem with the movie is the story, because you can do a story about a guy who you know overcomes time for love, and in a movie. Overcoming time for love is a perfectly reasonable thing to do, but in a novel, you've got to do it a certain way. You've got to make that uh, that particular category of victory rather significant. And he overcomes it once. And it doesn't really seem all that significant. He doesn't even, re- he hasn't even met her yet. And that's kind of just that's frustrating to me and and in the movie it's it's not so compounded by how much time you spend there because reading that book you spend a lot of time in 1896 and it turns out 1896 is really really boring um maybe it's that they don't have cars i don't know maybe it's like there's no good movies to see Uh, but like you know 
being in that era for a long time is frustrating. And the movie, it's less frustrating because you don't have to read ten pages of him describing the clothes people are wearing. Yeah. I, I didn't like the movie either. I would say in some ways I thought it was better than the book. In some ways I thought it was worse. I think that it was much more streamlined. I like the idea of, of having that loop with the watch and everything. And there were a lot of... Uh, um, Not necessarily a loop. No, whatever it was. But there are a lot of um, uh, little pieces that kind of fit together nicely uh, that, that don't fit together as nicely in the book. Um, and also I think that uh, maybe it's just the, the nature of, of it being a visual medium, but you're able to get your point across a lot more um, concisely with this story in the feature film form than you are in, in, in the novel form. For example, the penny, you know, the, the, the thing which brings him back into the future, um, that the way it was described in the book was really sort of clunky and took a long time and it was drawn out and the pacing was just weird. Whereas here in the movie, it was like, wow, that, that works really well. Well, I would would say the exact opposite in the movie. I thought it was incredibly awkward. Like Superman pulls a penny out of his pocket and he's looking at it. And then like he reaches his hand out. Like Uh, he's, I think I think it's interesting, like like it's it's almost like it's kryptonite. But you have that that sort of like moment where like he sees the penny and the music is like dun dun dun. And oh yeah, we should mention the music for that movie. Apparently, that's a big thing. John Barry, I don't know. Uh, The thing about that movie is is that if um, the book they they reference a lot of different composers and Mahler on a number of occasions, but um, if you're a fan of Rachmaninoff and you haven't seen Somewhere in Time. If you ever do see Somewhere in Time, you will no longer be a fan of Rachmaninoff because, my God, they use that same piece of music so many times. But apparently people love it. I mean, people talk about, like, the music uh, more than just about anything. The weird thing is I have now associated that piece of music with, like, the Oscars. Yeah. Because, like, they've used it for, like, the, like, in memoriam thing. A few times. Mm-hmm. So now it's like locked into my head. I hear that and I'm like, who died? Yeah. Oh, that's right, this guy. Because you can't hypnotize yourself back in time. But yeah, I liked, I liked how it was streamlined like that. But at the same time, it lost the few things that were in the book that I actually did like. And uh, because of that, I mean, I don't, I don't know which is better or worse. I guess the movie is better because it's shorter, but I didn't like either one of them. Well, I what, one thing I like is that there's this thing at the at the end of the movie that the book doesn't doesn't really deal with, which is like the idea that uh, the the story is essentially you know like love transcending time, mm-hmm. and that's a very interesting concept. It's also a very cinematic concept because movies love a good romance. Yeah, and at the end of the story, like he dies. Spoilers: he dies in the book and the movie. In the in, in, in the, the book, book, he dies because he was going to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the movie, cancer. he dies because he has a crippling depression. He has stops, a broken heart. Yes, he stops eating and just just lets himself die. Kind of like Padme in Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. That's a really disturbing reference. People don't know what I'm talking about. This is a Star Trek show. They haven't. No seen one's that ever movie. seen it. No, they haven't seen that movie. Yeah. Anyway, um, check check that movie out. It's good. No, no, it's not good. Um. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I see what you're saying. And, you know, one thing that you brought up there, which is interesting, you said this is a story about uh, love transcending time. I found a quote from uh, Matheson where he says almost that exact same thing. And he talks about how what dreams make come are, is a novel about love transcending death. Well, I was, I was, I was going to say that like what dreams may come, which I think he wrote after this. Yeah, which uh, we'll be covering next week. Right, but it's interesting though because the book, like the the movie, actually ends with like maybe they also transcended death mm-hmm. because the implication is like yeah they do meet up in whatever the afterlife is. They transcended time. Time was nothing. Death okay. is going to be the tricky one. They're well, going to have to, like, he's, fight he, demons. Well, he's talked about those two books, and he said that he thinks that uh, as far as novels are concerned, that that's those are his two best. So, I don't know. He's wrong about that, but yeah. I understand the idea. I, I think I'm, What Dreams May Come is actually fantastically well-written. I'm, I'm really curious. to. I mean, we, we will talk about What Dreams May Come in, in great length next week, but I, I am very curious... Uh, to read it and um, and watch it now and, and see see what's up with that and look at it really sort of as a as part of a, a pair with with this movie and this book. So, uh, an interesting note about the movie is that the day before the news broke that Richard Matheson died, I watched Somewhere in Time on Netflix. So it's all your fault. On a whim, I saw it and I was like, "Wow, they have Somewhere in Time on Netflix." I haven't seen that movie since I was a kid. I should watch this. And I watched it, and I was like, yeah, it does not hold up. Mm-hmm. Way to go. And the next day, he was dead. Your your one-star review on Netflix is what killed him. He died of a broken heart. I didn't give it a star review. There you go. So, anyway, um, <laughs> one more thing which I think that we should uh, note is that while we may not be fans of Somewhere in Time... Uh, that's not to say that there aren't people who are fans of Somewhere in Time. In fact, there are a lot of them. There's a group called Insight, the International Network of Somewhere in Time Enthusiasts, which is a fan club for Somewhere in Time, which is apparently huge. They have a convention uh, at the Grand Hotel in, in Michigan every year, which is where the movie was shot. On that weird little island mm-hmm. where they don't Mackinac have cars. Mackinac Island where they don't allow cars or something. Right. And uh, it, uh, the, everyone dresses up in costumes appropriate to the time period. Uh, they have celebrity guests you know, show up and, and uh, talk about the movie. And it sounds very much like a Star Trek convention. But these people are hardcore as well you know they've apparently according to wikipedia published over 1800 pages on the movie which is a lot for one movie 1800 pages for that's not that much it's it's a lot it's a lot through their little newsletter and um it's a lot considering the movie i would be surprised if there if there were less than 5,000 pages about blade runner (laughs) yeah i i guess i just um I don't know what, how much there is to talk about with this movie. What are you kidding me? The watch? The clothes? That porch swing? That's it. Okay. Um, they, they even paid for uh, Christopher Reeve's star on the Walk of Fame, and they, they uh, helped pay for Jane Seymour's star, along with the uh, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman fan club. So there you go. All right. Um, also, recently, uh, well, back in May of this year, 
Ken Davenport, who is a producer and writer on uh, for the stage, wrote uh, a musical of uh, Somewhere in Time, which debuted um, in Portland last May. Uh, I don't really know much about it beyond that. The fact that it hasn't gone anywhere else since then makes me think that maybe it bombed. It's Portland. They could. It's, it's a weird town. Yeah. It's entirely possible that they that it's that's really good and everybody loves it, but it's Portland, so they're obsessed with how it's all indie and nobody knows about it, and they're reluctant to send it to any other cities because then it would be mainstream and therefore not cool. Okay, it's a um, city ruled by hipsters. All right. Well, um, their mayor has a scarf on all the time. Okay, that's about it for. Bid time return and somewhere in time. Uh, do you have any final thoughts, Max? William H. Macy is in the movie. So is George Went. Really? Both of them. It's their first movie. Really? George Went is in it? Yeah. Holy cow, where is he? I don't know. He's like a college student or something. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And Christopher Plummer is in it as well, General Chang. Which is really weird because, I mean, I, I really consider this to be sort of like Richard Matheson's Titanic in a lot of ways, <laughs> oh, you know, it's like, mean. oh, this is what I, 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 this, I think this is my best work. This is a weird little tiny romance compared to all my other things. And I've got one of the Klingons from Star Trek six in the same exact role. Yeah. I mean, in, in a lot the of Titanic ways, I'm like, is actually sinking while the movie is taking place. It could be. Maybe while they no. were having sex, Leonardo DiCaprio was dying. Yeah. Could be. Could be. Do we know what month it was? I think we do. Oh, right, I think it fine. was June, oh. so it would have already happened, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's that's about it for Bid Time Return and Somewhere in Time. Uh, as always, you can find us on Twitter at ComTrackStars or email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. Or you could email us individually. We have TrekFM email addresses, Mike.Schindler at Trek.FM and Max.Hagel at Trek.FM. That's what it is. So there you go. Uh, you can also uh, check out our other show, Commentary Track Stars, on commentarytrackstars.com. And we will be back next week with John from Words with Nerds once again to discuss our final Richard Matheson movie book combo, What Dreams May Come. <laughs>